0: Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Romans as we continue our series through Romans. And this morning, we get the privilege of diving into the second half of Romans chapter 7. Now, this is a passage that we've all probably read at some point. We maybe have some strong opinions about this text, whether we find it encouraging or discouraging. And what I want to remind us of this morning as we come to Romans 7 is that God's Word is breathed out by God. It is God's very Word for us. And by nature of being breathed out by God, it is also very realistic. God does not sort of give us this view of the world that doesn't comport with reality, but God tells us the truth, and that's what we see in this passage, We see that just before our text this morning that Paul has declared that we are freed from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. And yet in this passage, we see this individual wrestling, what does it mean to fight against sin? What does it mean to actually have victory over sin? And it's to that we'll turn our attention to this morning. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? We'll read Romans 7, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. As we begin, Paul has just talked about the law, and so when he mentions what is good, he is referencing the law. So beginning in verse 13 Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you impart this truth to our hearts? Lord, would you encourage us through this word? Would you convict us of our sin that we might, with Paul, proclaim thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together this morning? We ask this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. What were you expecting when you signed up for the Christian life? Maybe you didn't feel like you were signing up for it. Maybe you've sort of grown up in the church and, and never known a day you didn't know Jesus. Or maybe you have sort of a, a definitive moment where you remember your, your conversion. Remember your story. What were you expecting when you signed up? What were you expecting the Christian life would be like? And I think if we can go back to the Olympics from a few weeks ago, what happens when people sort of cross the finish line? They do a victory lap, right? And they grab their country's flag and they celebrate and they go around. And there's a part of us that thinks that's what the Christian life should look like. One big victory lap. And we would have good reason to say that because places in scripture kind of allude to that. In 2 Corinthians two fourteen, Paul sort of says that, that Christ always leads us in this triumphal procession. And we say, yes, I want to sign up for that. That sounds great, triumphal procession, victory onto victory, going forward constantly. And then we come to a passage like Romans 7. And how do we fit what Paul describes here into our Christian experience? Maybe for some of us, it's actually not that hard because we live Romans 7. We've understood and experienced what it's like to to struggle with sin. To make progress, to, to experience some victory, and yet at the same time to feel like there's, there's just new levels of sin that we discover, and, and we might ask the question, am I really making progress? We're frustrated. We repent, we move forward, and, and we still have this sense that I'm, I'm, I'm false and full of sin, and it's sort of that that Paul wrestles with this morning. How do we understand this? How do we understand this experience of, of wrestling with sin and trying to make actual progress? That's what we'll see here in this this text this morning. And we'll see as there there are two cries of the heart that Paul sort of expresses here. One is a cry of of desperation. The other one is a cry of hope. Just by the nature of the way it's set up, we're going to spend most of our time on this cry of desperation because that's where Paul spends the most of his time this morning. And so let's pick up this, this cry that Paul offers looking at verse 13. He says this, did that which is good then bring death to me? To remind us of what's going on here, Paul has just sort of given this presentation of how the law really isn't what causes sin. Law is not to blame for our experience of of death. No, it's, it's, it's the sin that's underneath it. That's why he says at the end of verse 13, and through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. That sin would really be seen for what it is. As, he, as Paul sort of cries to make progress in holiness here, the frustration isn't directed towards the law. It's not that the law somehow is to blame, it's actually sin. Sin is the issue. Paul, without reservation, holds up that the law is good, and yet sin is causing us to experience this frustration that we, we seem to be desperate. How can we move forward? And so the next question that we need to wrestle with is who really is desperate in this text? Who is the I that Paul is talking about? And this is one of these places in Romans where you could probably say this any Sunday you preach on Romans, but this text is one of the most difficult texts in the book of Romans. And we, could, we could file this text under there. there. There is some dialogue between scholars on this text about who Paul is actually talking about. When Paul says I, who is he talking about? Is he talking about Paul the, the unbeliever, or is he talking about Paul the believer? There are some other views, but those are sort of the main, the main views there. Is Paul uh, an unbeliever here, or is he a believer? I'm going to argue, if you've maybe already noticed from what we've said this morning, that Paul is talking about a believer here. Paul is talking about his experience as a believer wrestling with sin. Now, why would we say that? Well, there are a few reasons. Let's let's look at what's happening here. If we go back to the context, verses 7 through 13, Paul is describing sort of a a pre-conversion Paul, a Paul who was still in Judaism, who was still struggling to maintain his righteousness by the law. And and all of the, the tenses there, if you'll notice, are in the past. Verse 19, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. Paul is saying there was a time where I didn't really know the law, and then I saw its fullness, and I realized that I thought I was keeping the law, but I wasn't. That's pre-conversion, Paul. And then when we get to verse 14, something happens that we need to pay attention to. All of the verbs in the text move from the past to the present, All of the verbs move from the past to the present. And so the most simple way for this to be understood is that Paul has talked about his previous life, and now he's talking about his life as a believer. And there are other notes in the text that sort of point towards that. Look look at how Paul describes himself. Verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I I agree with the law that it is good. Paul has a different response to the law in this text than an unbeliever would have. I don't know if you've talked with, you know, an an unbeliever, they're not naturally gravitating to say, yes, God's law, I want to follow that. And yet this person that Paul is talking about is one who delights in God's law. Verse 22 adds that. It says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is different than what Paul will say in Romans 8, verse 7, of those who are hostile to God, who does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We see here someone in Romans 7, someone who actually wants to delight in God's law, someone who is, in verse 18, self-aware of their sin. He says, I know nothing good dwells in me. This is someone who has wrestled with God's law, has seen his need for the grace of God. And one who is even wrestling with change. We see that in verse 17, but also later in, in 23, he says there's this war raging against me. I'm now struggling against my sin in a new way. And so those are some of the reasons I think we should read this text as Paul, the the believer. It's the most natural way that the text unfolds. Now, if that's the case, why would somebody say this is an unbeliever? Let's look at verse 14. This is important to kind of see, to understand what Paul is, is teaching us this morning through the Spirit. Verse 14 says this, "'For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin.'" Now, that's a, that's a large statement, and some will read that and say, there is no way that verse 14 describes a believer. Why? Because just before in Romans 6, he said this in 6.18, and having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. How can he now say that we are sort of sold in this reality of sin? Well, I think what Paul is doing here is he's speaking from a perspective that sort of considers his experience now. Paul realizes that he still can't keep the law. He's struggling, he's trying, but he realizes he still can't, can't keep it. And his experience is such that at times, not always, but at times it feels like he is struggling with sin in this way that verse 14 describes on occasion. And what he's doing here in verse, or chapter 7 is to describe that struggle. In, ver- in chapter 8, he'll, he'll bring in sort of the, the rich life of the Spirit that is, that is very different, but... I think you and I can even look at this text and say, I, I resonate with some of this. I resonate with the actual struggle I experience with sin. I resonate with how difficult it is sometimes to, 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 to feel like I'm, I'm winning this battle with my sin. And what really this text does, even with that verse 14, is it, it raises the question of, of who are we anyway? We read this morning from 2 Corinthians in our assurance of, of grace that we are new creations. And yet, we see this struggle with sin. How do these things fit together? Well, it's interesting if we follow Paul's argument, sort of reaching all the way back to verse five, it's because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ that we actually now experience this struggle with sin. Because prior to conversion, are we struggling with sin? Not, not really. Why wouldn't we sin? But here now, because we have peace with God, because we are these new people, we're put into this this struggle. And it raises the question, who are we? Look at verse 17. Paul begins to ask this same question. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul is not sort of abdicating responsibility here. He's not saying, well, sin's in me doing it. I don't have any responsibility. No, he's saying there is a part of me, the, the true me, if you will, who does not want to sin. But it's this sin dwelling in me, this indwelling residual sort of sin that is still at work. It says the same thing in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. And so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to distinguish between his his inner self and his, his flesh, his true self, the real me, as Tim Keller put it, and and the, the sin that is still at work. This isn't the only place in Scripture we see Paul sort of making this distinction. If we look at Ephesians 3, verse 16, it says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. That's what Paul is describing here. His inner being, the, the, the new person renewed by Christ, doesn't want to sin, and yet the flesh at times brings us into the sin and this is the struggle that he he highlights here. Look at verse 20. We see this again. He says this, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. Same reality of, of sin indwelling. Now, we can sometimes think of it this way that we sort of maybe generally think of our Christian life there's, you know, there's a, there's a part of me over here that wants to do good. And there's part of me over here that doesn't, and they kind of butt heads, and we kind of think maybe of the, you know, the, the things on our shoulders, whatever you want to call them, that are sort of trying to get us to go one way or the other. That's not a biblical picture of what's happening. Paul is saying, the true me, the one renewed and unified to Christ, is who I am. Now, there's indwelling sin at work in the members of my body that, that wants to pull me into sin, and at times that happens, but that's not who I am anymore. I really am the new creation in Christ. Maybe think of it this way. Going back to the Olympics, there was a pole vaulter, Katie Najat. Maybe you watched her, gold medal winner. And so she was going through the competition, struggled early on, but finally, at 4.9 meters, put her pole in, vaulted over, and won the gold medal for the US. Now, what was interesting is as she was over the bar celebrating She she was a gold medal winner. She went up to the stands to talk to some of her family and friends who were there. And then what did she do? Well, she actually went back to the track and tried to go again. She she tried to race or or run and actually break the the US record for the pole vault. Why do I bring that up? Well, in, in a certain way, it reminds me of what goes on here. Was Katie a gold medal winner when she ran down the track the next time? She was. That was who she truly was, even as she tried to continue on, tried to go farther, and, and quite frankly, it was a dismal attempt. She ran about 100 or twenty feet down the track, put her pole in, and just sort of like ditched the whole thing. It wasn't a glamorous sort of victory lap of higher and higher heights. It was, it was a failed jump. But she was still a gold medal winner. It's a little bit of the picture that we see here. Who we truly are is this inner self, and yet we struggle against sin. We struggle against it. Our Westminster Confession of Faith talks about sanctification in this way, and it talks about a war of corruption in us that for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part can and does overcome and saints grow in grace. It's talking about that struggle. It's talking about what Paul describes here, that we do struggle against this, and at times it feels like we're not making much progress. But that doesn't change who we are in Christ. Now, what do we do with this? Well, on, on one level, this should reframe maybe our expectations to know that this is, this is real. This is an actual experience that we, we need to understand, that we don't somehow outgrow our need for Jesus, but we stay here growing, working. That this is not sort of some junior Christian's experience, but Paul is a mature Christian who is still struggling and, and, and yes, having victory, but at times really struggling with with his sin. That's one thing we can learn from it. And along with that, notice Paul's vulnerability to talk about this. Paul is not shy of the fact that he is a sinner. He declares, I am the chief of sinners. Here he, he draws us into his own struggle with, with sin. We don't know what's sin. We don't know what is going on here. But he, he, as he grows and maybe even sees more depths of sin in his life, maybe attitudes of pride, maybe whatever it may be, he, he realizes he has room to grow. Is that, is that our attitude with sin? Are we, are we willing to actually say, yeah, I, I struggle with sin? Are we vulnerable with it? And also, are we desperate to get rid of our sin? Do, do you know the, the tone throughout this? Paul is not sort of using this as a, as a proof text to say, yes, yeah, sometimes we struggle with sin, and I guess we just wait, out, wait it out. Someday in heaven, we won't. No, he's desperate to get rid of his sin. He's desperate to kill it. He's desperate to move forward in reliance on Jesus and his spirit. And does that desperation match our desperation as we think through our sins? Maybe our, our sexual temptations, maybe our our pride, maybe any number of things, our, our coveting, our, our negat- negativity that is just sort of quarrelsome, whatever our sins may be, do we are we desperate to get rid of those? Are we desperate to say, that's not who I am anymore? I am the new creation in Christ. I'm gonna put off the old and put on the new. Is that how we live? Again, not using this text as a pretext, but as a motivation and encouragement to go forward into our need for Christ. Another question Paul asks here is really this experience of of what am I doing? Look at verse 15. He says this, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It's almost some confusion. Now, Paul could probably even from his own answers, pieced together, well, this is kind of why I'm doing it. But there's a real experience that says, why, why am I doing this? How is this the case? And there's an honest wrestling there. Now, if I do what I do not want in verse 16, it carries on, it reminds me of Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says this in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But Paul says there in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, he takes two chapters to say in the book of Romans. But it's that same experience of, of, of struggling, of, of, of working, and, and relying on the Spirit to help us move as we experience this, this reality. Now, I don't know how this text or this sort of experience has been maybe communi- communicated to you in your Christian life. As I was reading through it this week, I was reminded of a retreat I went to about 10 years ago, and we had chapels in the morning and the evening at this retreat, and the speaker one morning got up and said this statement that he meant to be encouraging, but was deeply discouraging. He got up before a room of probably about 40 of us and said, I haven't really sinned in three months. And that was his picture of Christian maturity. And he didn't say it boastfully, he didn't say it proudly, but he, he really felt that he had sort of moved to a place in his sanctification where he, he really didn't sin very much, occasionally, but not, not very much. And he also, and he said this kind of towards the end of that session, and he said, come back tonight and I'll tell you how. You can live this way, too. I I don't remember for the life of me what he said that night. All I remember was leaving discouraged and frustrated and questioning whether I was really growing in my faith. And so I I bring that experience up to remind us of a few things. And and I I believe that brother was a brother in Christ who who loved Jesus and, and, and was moving forward in some type of sanctification. But I don't think he understood sin, I don't think he understood the pervasiveness of sin, and I don't think his definition of sin was big enough. Because what Paul records here and what most of us experience in our Christian life is as we move forward, as we do defeat sins, as we do move forward in holiness, we also discover new parts of ourselves. We discover new sins. We discover old sins that are are sort of mutated in a different way, and and we, we still need to have vigilance and push back against those. See, what was missing in that retreat speech was what is also missing in Romans 7. Now, what is missing in this text? Do you notice anything? What's sort of lacking in here? If we read through 7 through 25, we notice that there's something that that really is indicative of the Christian life that Paul doesn't talk about. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is nowhere mentioned in these, these passages, and there's a reason for that. Look with me back at Romans 7, verse 6, which is sort of a, a statement that informs the rest of this text. He says this, but now we are released from the law, having died to, which held, to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, what is, seems to be described here in some sense is someone trying to live the Christian life according to the written code. Trying to take the law, which Paul has already said is good and holy and righteous, but really just exposes our sin and saying, I'm going to take the law, and I'm going to get better. I'm going to take the law, and I'm going to win in this war of sanctification. Now, the law is spiritual. It is good. It is all these things. But that's not what the law is designed to do. There's this humorous picture in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read that picture of, by John Bunyan of sort of the Christian life, and it's a conversation between two individuals, Christian and Faithful, trying to sort of live the Christian life, and, and Faithful says to Christian, yeah, I was, I was making some progress, and then this guy came out of nowhere and beat me up. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it's not much different in Bunyan's text, and it beat me up, and he just sort of went after me, and Christian says to Faithful, yeah, I know who that is. That's Moses. That's Moses. And then he says this, he spares none, neither does he know how to show mercy to those that transgress the law. Now, what is Bunyan getting at? Well, he's getting at what Paul brings attention to here, that the law isn't how we are sanctified. It's the spirit. The spirit, the law instructs us, it tells us what is good, it's our schoolmaster, but if we're gonna actually change and follow the law, we need the spirit to do that can't do that without the Spirit. We can't just come up with a few techniques and then not sin. No, we need the Spirit to change us, even as we exert our own effort and and do work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's always in reliance on the Spirit. That's how sanctification works. That's how we become more like Jesus. If we can look ahead just briefly to Romans 8, verse 9, it says this, "'You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit.'" If in fact the spirit of God God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. That's how we live the Christian life. We live it in dependence on the spirit. So if we're, we're wrestling through this, if we feel very much in a Romans 7 situation in our life, what do we do? Well, we need to remind ourselves that We need help to get out of this situation. We need the Spirit's guidance. Sometimes our advice to fellow believers looks something like this. You just need to to stop doing that. And and is that true? Should we stop sinning? Absolutely, yes and amen. That is true and biblically. But sometimes we, we say that and forget what Paul is saying here, that we need something beyond ourselves to really save us, to really help us, to really move us forward. And sometimes maybe we say it ourselves, we say things like this, yeah, I know I have this sin that's kind of out there, and and you can fill in the blanks, whatever the sin is that you are struggling with, and you say, someday when I just, I just need a little bit more time. Like, I'm going to give it two more months, and then I'm really going to get serious about this sin. Or we say, hey, maybe if I just have a little bit of a lower stress level, I'll manage it, I'll I'll be good. Um, I need to figure out a few things. Maybe when I'm a little bit older, maybe when this circumstance changes, maybe when this relationship's a little bit better, then I can actually work on that sin. That's that's a law-based way of thinking about victory over sin. It's a way that really rests on on us. Instead of coming, as Paul does, honestly, even in prayer to God and saying, God, I have this, this sin, would you help me with it? I want victory over it. Would you give me, through the power of your Spirit, the ability to live, as, live in reflection to my union with Christ, who I really am, that I would be that person? And will God do things like use all the things that sometimes we, we lean on? Yes, he will use those things, but at the root of it is the Spirit's work. And that's really what leads us to this, this cry of hope that Paul offers. In verse 24 and following, he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? These are strong words, words that, in a sense, we should actually find somewhat encouraging. That Paul, as he is an apostle, as he's ministering to the church, would say these words, wretched man that I am. And then what does he ask for deliverance from? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, sometimes I think we read that and we just say, he's just talking generally about sin. No, he's talking about his his actual body, his physical body that that will die. He's saying, this body that is still affected by sin, this reality that I experience with sin, would I die to that? He's not asking just for some, some temporary relief from sin, some delivery over sin here and now. He's longing for the day when his body itself will be done away with. Because if you look in Romans 8, what does he say there? We long for what? The resurrection of our bodies. It's that same groaning that we see in Romans 8 of the Spirit groaning and and all of creation groaning, longing for the new creation. It's the same desire that Paul says here that someday this battle will be over. Someday it will be over. He longs for the real deliverance that is to come. And this is where the good news comes in. It's short, but it's absolutely focused on where our hope should be. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news. Right there in the middle of his struggle, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He needs Jesus, and he knows it. And so he shares his own struggle with us to say that in your moments when you feel wretched man am I, where do you go? Don't kind of go down and say wretched man am I, man, I just need to get my act together. No, Jesus, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where our hope comes from. That's where real deliverance comes from. But you'll notice that that's not the end of the text, is it? It says this, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Even as Paul sort of looks forward to his final hope, he says, right now, my true self serve the law, and yet in my, my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He brings us back into this, this struggle. He'll answer more of how that all fits together in, in Romans 8, but he reminds us here that even as we see victory, there is a need for the struggle that we experience now. How do we maybe take that last little line and actually find some understanding of what that means for our own experience. Maybe some of you this morning are are really weary from sin. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's the sin of others. Maybe you're in a position where you are just sort of really frustrated with sin. Say, man, there there are parts of me that I just wish weren't true. Maybe the way I speak to other people. Maybe the way I spoke to my spouse yesterday. Whatever it might be, maybe there's something that says, I just wish that was not true of me anymore. The reminder here, again, is to, in those times, run to Jesus and ask for his grace, to ask for his transforming power, to ask for his his goodness to us in the midst of this. There might be some of you that actually look at this and say, is that that all we get? What do I mean by that? We might look at this and say, all right, so I see I'm struggling with sin. Paul sort of looks to Jesus and says, someday my body of death will be done away with. I'll have a resurrected body and this will all be gone. But, But what about right now? What about tomorrow? What about the rest of our lives? That's really where chapter 8 comes in and brings the Spirit and sort of shows us how the Spirit will help us. But if I can offer something before we get to that good news of life in the Spirit, it's this, that sometimes we have this sense that if we're not fully perfect, that no progress has been made. If we haven't achieved sort of the nth degree of perfection, then how we really gained? Have you really grown? I'd encourage you to look at your life and say, what does my life look like now from, from 15 years ago? Maybe with this sin, maybe with another sin. How have I grown? How has God changed me? Francis Schaefer put it this way. He says, in the absence of present perfection, Christians are to help each other on to increasingly substantial healing on the basis of the finished work of Christ. This is our calling. Substantial healing, moving forward, not in, not in present perfection, but an actual growth in righteousness that Paul will, will talk about, that there is a hope of real change, of lasting change. The gospel does offer that to us. But this passage reminds us that that growth is not rooted somehow in our human potential. It's not real change begins in our neediness and desperation for Christ. The real change for Paul comes in that moment when he says, wretched man am I, and then looks to Jesus. That's how you and I begin our fight with sin. With the need for for Jesus. We can go back to that pole vaulter for a moment. And maybe you saw this this shot in, in the media. But Katie Najat goes over the bar and there's this moment where a photographer captured this perfectly. She is beaming. She's just cleared it. She looks at the bar. She knows in that moment that she is the gold medal winner. She's cleared the highest height, everyone else has failed at this height, she is victorious. There's a, there's a glimmer of that reality here when Paul sort of, in the midst of his struggle, finally sees the hope that he has. And, and that's you and I in Christ. Remember that we read this, we're not somehow trying to earn our salvation, but we're going back to where our salvation is found and saying, it's Jesus. And what he has done, the identity he has given me, that is who I am truly. And so from that position, I can walk, as Paul says, not in the old way of the written code, but in the new way of the Spirit. And so what is the cry of your heart this morning? Are you desperate to be free of your sin? And in that desperation, are you looking not to yourself, not to the law, but to Jesus and to his Spirit to move forward, that we might actually win this War with sin. As we anticipate that day when we will have that resurrected body and the wretched man will rejoice in what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. Lord, as we fight this new struggle with sin, would you give us your spirit? Would you give us encouragement? Lord, in in moments of despair and despondency, would you use all of us to come around each other to encourage, to help, to guide, to move out of sin towards righteousness? Never being presumptive in our sins, never being defeatist in them, but always looking to the hope that you have. That we would cry with Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.